Good morning. It is good to see all of you here today on such a beautiful day outside, but it's also a beautiful day to be inside, be inside with God's people, to be able to celebrate uh, the Lord together. And as we come to this day and we recognize that we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper together, and that is always a wonderful time for brothers and sisters to come together and to be able to worship the Lord. Today is also a special day because it is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is the day in which the church gathers together and remembers Jesus' final and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the holy city, on that last week of his life. And it is what we describe this week really today kicks off what we describe as Passion Week. And so as we begin to think about the word passion, sometimes that that word, what initially comes to our mind when we think about the word passion is, is the concept of love. Love most commonly comes to our mind because the things that we, we are, the, the people that we love the most, the things that we love the most, we often describe as those are the things that we're the most passionate about. And so to, to consider passion and love together really is a, is a natural harmony of two thoughts. But we might also recognize that the word passion is also closely related to the concept of suffering. If those things that, that you love the most, the people that you love the most, you're also the most willing to suffer for them, to sacrifice for them, to give of yourself for them. And so when we talk about passion, we have to keep those two concepts in mind that particularly as it pertains to the week of passion, it leads up to our celebration of the resurrection of our Lord, we have to recognize that passion means that it, it carries the concept of His love, but also that of His suffering. Those two concepts are conjoined together. And what we recognize is that in His infinite love, Jesus displayed that through His unflinching willingness to suffer, the humiliation, the scorn, the brutality, and ultimately his death on the cross for the sake of sinners. Now, describing Palm Sunday and, and looking at that day, that final time that Jesus went into the city of Jerusalem, that triumphal entry is, is talked about in all four Gospels. But today I want us to look at it from John's perspective. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to John chapter 12. John 12. The, the passage that we find this morning really describes what took place as Jesus made his way into the city. Now, it's interesting to note in John 12, as, Jesus is, is, excuse me, as John describes Jesus going into Jerusalem, it comes on the heels of his description of Jesus celebrating a, a meal with his disciples in a town called Bethany. And it was there in Bethany that also at the table eating with them was a man named Lazarus. And Lazarus was a man that many of you will recognize Jesus had raised from the dead after he had been dead for four days. And Jesus had called his name and he had come forth from the tomb in which he had lain for four days. And because of that, people were talking and all kinds of, 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 of excitement had been built around the fact that Lazarus was alive. And, and so Lazarus had been with Jesus and actually was with Jesus as he was making his way into the city. And, and it was because of that that many people were very interested in seeing Jesus, but they were also interested in seeing Lazarus, the one who had been to the other side and come back. And so there was a lot of intrigue. There was a lot of excitement and interest. But understand this, not, not everyone was so happy to see Jesus. 
Not everyone was excited to see him come into their city. By the time that Jesus' final triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the Jewish political leaders along with the religious establishment, they were on edge because of the swell of, of the public sentiment that was directed toward Jesus. In fact, John tells us that the chief priests had put a plot together to see Jesus murdered. Now we saw the, really the genesis of that even take place in what we studied from Mark's gospel in our continued series, study through that series last week. We recognize that, that, that Jesus, to the Pharisees and to the scribes and to the religious elite, Jesus was a menace. He was a, he was a threat to their way of life. He was someone who needed to be destroyed. But as John's gospel makes clear to us, because of Jesus' popularity, those who wanted to see him dead were going to have to be careful. You see, uh, he, so many people were excited about him and excited about the prospect of what he might bring to them and his, his popularity and the, and the fact that Lazarus had risen from the dead. Those things were so intriguing to the people that the religious elite who wanted to see him dead were going to have to take great care. So they realized that not only did they have to kill Jesus, John tells us that they decided in order to squelch his popularity, they were going to have to kill Lazarus too. It's just a great bunch of guys. Don't you agree? Not only do they want to see Jesus dead, they want to see Lazarus who'd been raised from the dead killed again. So on that first Palm Sunday, we see two forces lining up on the road to meet Jesus as his entourage makes their way into the holy city to celebrate Passover. There's a large multitude of curiosity seekers who have heard the stories of Jesus, the miracle worker, and they want to see him work those miracles for themselves. They wonder if he could be the one that they had always heard of who would come and, and set the Israelites free from the Roman rule for which they had been so suffering. Would he reestablish the throne of David? On the other side, though, there were those, the menacing forces who saw Jesus as a threat to their way of life and to the establishment. And his teaching and his standards confronted them and intimidated them. And rather than worship him, rather than coronate him as king, they wanted to see him killed. Those are the two perspectives, two opinions of Jesus that are swirling around as we get to verse 12 of John chapter 12 and there we read these words the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast that's the feast of Passover when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord the King of Israel then Jesus when he had found a young donkey sat on it as it is written Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we do thank you that we can gather together on a day like today around the table of the Lord to be able to remember the sacrifice that he made for us and then to remind ourselves of the promise that he has given to us that he will one day come again. And Lord, for many of us, our hearts are troubled. We've experienced trouble in our own personal lives perhaps this week, struggling through difficult issues, perhaps physical, perhaps emotional, related with family. Father, right now, what we desperately want to do is to be reminded of your provision for us. So for many of us, we look about the things that are happening in our world today, the unrest, the potential for war. The scriptures tell us that there will always be wars and rumors of wars. That also points us to the fact that there will come a day when you will return and you will settle all things. We pray to that end that you would come, Lord Jesus. As we, your church, stop to remind ourselves and remember of all that you've done for us today, I pray that our focus would not be misplaced, but rather our hope would come only in you and what you have accomplished for us on the cross, because truly that is our only hope. We pray that you would encourage our hearts with that truth this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus' entry into the city was really quite a scene. Um, the waving of palm branches, which oftentimes you, is associated with Palm Sunday, had become a national symbol of Israel, the palm branch had. And so the waving of that was really a swell of nationalistic pride. The cries of Hosanna from the people. That was, that, along with the declaration of Jesus as being the king of Israel. That and the fact that Jesus was sitting on the colt of a donkey as he was riding into the city as a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy of old. Well, you can begin to understand how that just continued to fuel the crowds. The swell of nationalistic fervor was just rising, and they were so excited to see Jesus. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet those same things also began to repel the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It only entrenched them even further in their thirst for his blood. As I mentioned earlier, the stage is now set. Jesus' great love and his willingness to suffer were coming together to really explode upon the human landscape in such a way that the world would never be the same again. That's why it's called Passion Week. What's crucial for us to not miss out on, though, is the reason that Jesus was on this road to Jerusalem at this particular time and why all of these large crowds had gathered in Jerusalem to begin with. You see, they were all there to celebrate Passover. And every year, people from all over Israel would make the trek to the holy city to celebrate this great feast of Passover, to remember what God had done for them, for their ancestors in the past, when he had delivered 
the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery and brought them into the land of promise. Now, you might recall that Passover was a meal that the Lord himself instituted. And he did, he did so with a marvelous purpose in mind because he wanted to, to bring in a very visceral way, a very experiential way, so that the children of Israel could understand what it was that he was going to do for them. And in that first Passover, as, as instructed by Moses, the people of Israel would gather together and one of the things that they would eat would be bitter herbs. And the bitterness of those herbs, when they put them in their mouth, it would cause such a, a, a distaste in their mouth. And that was there to remind them of, of the fact that they had been under the Egyptian taskmasters in Egypt, that they had suffered so in their slavery. You might also recall that they were there to serve, they, they served unleavened bread. Now, the bakers among us know what leaven is for in baking. You put leaven in bread to cause it to rise. But that is a process that takes time. So the Israelites were instructed to eat unleavened bread for a specific reason, and that was because they didn't have much time. What God was going to do in bringing about their release from Egyptian slavery was going to happen so quickly they did not have time to leaven their bread and allow it to rise. God was about to send a plague upon the Egyptians and upon all of them who lived in that area that would cause Pharaoh to just kick the Israelites out of his country. Now you'll remember... The Lord had already sent nine other plagues that had only hardened Pharaoh's heart. But this tenth and final plague, God determined that it would be the one that would carry out exactly what he determined to have happen. And in that tenth and final plague, God determined to kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt. But a way of escape was provided. For every household who followed Moses' instruction by killing an unblemished young lamb and sprinkling the blood of that young lamb on the doorpost and the lentils of their home. The lamb became known as the Paschal lamb. It became known as the Passover lamb because by its death, God provided a way of escape from the certain death that he had promised would come. And on the night that the Lord sent the 10th plague, death came to every home in Egypt. Either the death of the firstborn or the death of the Paschal Lamb. Now, notice that the distinguishing mark was not whether it was an Israelite home or an Egyptian home. That was not what distinguished the difference between the two. What distinguished the difference was rather whether or not the doorpost and the lentils of that home had been sprinkled with the blood of the Paschal Lamb. In other words, every blood-stained door served as a sign. It was a sign of Israelite faith and obedience. And it was a sign that their safety from divine judgment would come because they had put their faith in the remedy that God had divinely provided. As one writer put it, he writes it this way. He says, for the people coming out of Egypt, it was the body and the blood of the sacrificial lamb that marked them as the people of God, whom the angelic destroyer would pass over, thus sparing their firstborn sons. And at the same time, 
as the destroying angel was passing over Israel, he was leaving a trail of death among the Egyptians. Thus, the annual observance of the Passover was instituted. Moses instructed the people to celebrate this, this day as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Each fresh Jewish generation was to learn and to celebrate this Passover festival. Consequently, that is why Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. It's why all these crowds had gathered in Jerusalem. They had come to do exactly what we have come to do this morning. They had come to, to look back and to remember the divine remedy that God had provided for their ancestors to be delivered from Egyptian slavery into the land of promise. And that's why they were there. We come this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper to do the same thing. To remember the divine remedy that Jesus came to provide for us so that we might be forgiven of our sins. What I want to draw further attention to, though, is that the Passover meal that, that Jesus and his disciples were to celebrate together, that would give way to this greater meal. And where we see that take place is over in Luke chapter 22. So if you're there in John, just turn back with me a few pages to Luke chapter 22. Because here we find that it is now Thursday of Passion Week. And it was on Thursday of Passion Week that the Passover meal was celebrated. And Jesus had arranged for him and his disciples to be able to eat this meal together. And as he did so, he was fully cognizant of the conspiracy of the chief priests and the Pharisees against him. He knew how fickle the crowd was. He knew that they largely gathered because they wanted to see what he could do for them. They wanted, they wanted what he was able to provide for them. It wasn't that they wanted to worship him as much as they just wanted him to do for them what they desired. So he has these ones that are trying to conspire against him to kill him. He has others that are only interested in him for selfish purposes. But even more so, Jesus knew that on the following day, on Good Friday, he would be put to death unjustly. Therefore, he told his disciples, though it doesn't appear that they actually understood it from what he says there, that this would be his last meal. And in the process of celebrating the Passover, which would be his last, Jesus instituted what we have come to know as the Lord's Supper. So look, look with me there in Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, Jesus sat down with the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. I want you to notice the incredible picture of selflessness that is painted in this scene by what Jesus says there in verse 15. It's clear that Jesus knew what lay in front of him. It's clear that he understood what was about to happen to him. 
His fervent desire was to share this final Passover meal with them, with his disciples. He says, before I suffer. What's evident is that Jesus knew what was coming. He knew the torture that he would go through. He knew the the abandonment that he would experience, not only from his disciples who were around that table with him, but more importantly, he recognized that the forsakenness that he would experience when he hung there on that cross, the forsakenness that he would experience at the hands of his own heavenly father. These last few hours as he sat there in that upper room with his disciples were the last hours that he would experience any point of safety and peace. It was during this meal that Jesus takes the bread, which was always a part of every meal that they would have shared, but particularly a part of the Passover celebration. He gives thanks for it and he breaks it and he distributes it to each of the disciples surrounding that table. And when he does, he looks at them and he says, this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me now when he said this to his disciples Jesus was already looking ahead to what was going to happen the next day when he went to the cross he was speaking of himself as giving of his body as a sacrifice a saving sacrifice he would give of himself dying in our place to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sins. As one has said, to say that Jesus died is to state history. To state that Jesus died for you is to state doctrine. Furthermore, to say that Jesus died for you is to say something more than he just died for your benefit. Infinitely more, in fact. Because to say that he, he died for you is to say that he died in your place. He died as your substitute. He suffered the death that you deserve to die. He went to the cross so that you would not have to go to the cross and suffer an eternity of being separated from the Father. He gave up his life. He forfeited his life so that you might gain yours. Jesus told his disciples, he says, do this. Eat of this bread. Remember the sacrifice that I'm giving on your behalf, in your place. Do this in remembrance of me. So as we come to the table this morning, that's what we do. We eat of this bread. And as we do, it symbolizes for us the body of Christ. And it reminds us that Christ took our place. And our confession simply is this. He died for me.